listener. Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Around Town. I'm Emma Joyce, Features Editor. Today, we're getting to know Malaysian chef Jundaku, the restaurateur behind four Hojak venues in Sydney. Junda has a pretty interesting story about how he started in cooking. He credits a love of flavor to his ama, his grandmother. But he really learned to cook as a teenager when he first moved to Sydney and he was given $150 a week to spend on groceries. Today, Junda relishes the opportunity to play with flavor and challenge what it means when we say authentic Malaysian food. He's also just launched a cookbook, Hojak, A Taste of Malaysia. And he has big plans for an expansion to Melbourne, where he's opening a three-story venue on Burke Street. Junda, thank you so much for joining us. We've been looking over your cookbook all week. It's been around the office and we're just thrilled with all the different elements of it. We also really like how you've got dedicated sections to certain things. One of those I really want to dive into because it's dedicated to your grandma. What was the impact of your grandma's cooking on on the way that you think about cooking today? Yeah. So I guess to start with, it wasn't so much about her cooking. It was more of her as a person, right? Like how she's so nurturing and caring and, you know, coming out. Like they fled China to Malaysia from the war and they got put into a government housing in Penang. And so they were poor. And when uh, my dad and mom finally came out to work, they had to, you know, work very hard to provide a better life for us. So they worked hard. My grandma and my granddad pretty much took care of me a lot when I was young and I, you know, I developed that bond and relationship with her. And back then, grandmoms would be the one who always cooked, right? She would be the one in the kitchen. She would be the one preparing everything. She'd be cooking for the whole family. And obviously as a kid, that's what I grew up watching. That's what I grew up uh, eating. And so I had a very, very fond memory of her. And, you know, when I came to uh, Sydney, when I was 16, uh, I was literally, you know, put here by myself and I didn't know how to cook then, but I knew I loved to eat, right? And and that kind of comes from your grandma. Yes, yes. And you know how tough it is when you love to eat, but you couldn't cook. <laughs> and it was a uh, catch-22. And then I had to learn to start, you know, cooking for myself. And I had to, like, every time I was homesick, homesick was a big thing as well. And when you were homesick, you know, I keep thinking about uh, what she used to cook. And that's when I tried to play around and uh, go around with the recipe. Uh, fast forward to where we are right now. Uh, it's not so much as a section dedicated to her in the book. I actually opened a whole restaurant, a 110-seater restaurant in Haymarket, dedicated to her because I loved her that much. I wanted to put her food that I cherish so much on the menu so that I could share it with the people of Sydney, right? Um, dedicating her in the book, it's more so of... Uh, repaying her back for what she did for me because I I would I, I can honestly say that I am the person I am today because of her. And so now her her legacy, if if what we could call it, um uh lives on. She passed away, you know, right before COVID started and, you know, even though she's not here with us right now, her legacy, her cooking is, you know, spread, you know, all over the internet on uh, it's in a restaurant in Sydney and now, yeah, in a cookbook. You've brought in a photo. What's the photo of? I went back uh, to take a photo of their government housing of, or where we spent our childhood, right? It was a small, it was actually on, on Le Boaki in Penang. It's a, uh, I guess, three-story flat. It's very, very small. It's a two-bedroom apartment that literally was just one toilet uh, with a shower, 
one kitchen and two bedroom and a very, very small living room. Now, my grandparents went on to have uh, six kids. So it was one bedroom for the, my grandparents and then the other six kids would all be in the same one bedroom. So obviously, eventually when they grew up and they grew bigger, you know, they moved out and they moved to KL. And so then the place was vacant. It was just my grandmother and my granddad. And so every time we had school holidays, uh, my granddad and my grandma would take me or us, but the grandkids back to Penang and we would, this was our fun house. If you're thinking of the memories of your grandma cooking for you, is there a dish that comes to mind? It would definitely be either her, her sweet and sour curry fish or it would be the braised pork belly. So those were the two things that, you know, every time she cooked it, the whole, or it wasn't a big place anyway, you could smell it straight away. You know, in the morning as a kid, you would be sleeping in the bed. Uh, she would be in the kitchen. Even when she starts, you know, just walk frying the garlic, you smell it. And that's, you know, that th those are the memories that I associate with that I just jump out of bed and I just follow my nose, right? Like, of course, all the other memories of her bringing us to, the wet markets, and I guess that's where again, like I said, so kids now, even my kids, when I bring back, when I bring them back to Malaysia, and I say let's go to a wet market, they're like, ugh, they can't stand the smell, they can't stand, it, and it's dirty, right? But so, what is a wet market for anyone who hasn't yeah. experienced that? So, a wet market in Malaysia is where you uh, you go in, you know, all the livestocks are there, the chicken, the fish, the beef, the lamb. Uh, in Malaysia, there's no fridges, there's no freezers, they're all late just on a bench with ice on top. Uh, they do the butchering there as well, you know, and of course, why the wet market smelled so bad in Malaysia was because uh, we're constantly at 33 degrees as well without any fridge. So it was, yeah, it smelled really bad. And I guess coming back to it, it was more so of like, even I'm, because of her, that's why I love going to the wet market, you know, and for my kids, when they go there, they go, ooh, that smell. For me, when I get, when I go to the wet market, I go, ooh, <laughs> That smell, you know? <laughs> and it's just the stuff that we, we grew up on. Like in Penang, you'd be eating by the roadside, like beside the gutter, and, you know? It, 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 it would smell funky, you know? But the, all of that is kind of, it's the driving force behind the restaurants that you have now and also the ones that you're about to open. We'll talk about that a little bit later because you've got some exciting news for anyone in Melbourne. But I'd love to kind of go back to that story about your move to Australia. Because you were a teenager and you came here with your brother and you moved into an apartment, just the two of you, went to a high school and basically you had to be able to buy your own food and cook for yourselves and, and, and also enjoy the food that you were having. Remind me or tell us about what that was like. So when we first arrived, my parents spent about a month to set us up uh, and obviously my mom was still here. She was doing the cooking and it didn't really sink in until they actually went, all right, guys, we're going back to Malaysia. You're here on your own. And you go, oh. So then we walked to the grocery shop and then we looked at a lot of things that we knew were familiar, but we didn't know what to do with it, mm -hmm. right? So, but the one thing that we did know was uh, instant noodles because that was one of the things that we used to cook in Malaysia to, for ourselves a lot anyway. It was a staple in our household. So we bought a lot of instant noodles, boxes of them, eggs and obviously bread like we had a lot of sandwiches and uh eventually after a couple of months of just constantly you know instant noodles every day like i kid you not back then when we were growing boys we would smash about five packets of indomie goreng each like and that was breakfast lunch 
and dinner after school. And <laughs> I mean, as a normal human being, you would eventually get sick of it. And yeah, you get a bit bored of exactly those flavors all cor- the time. Correct. And that's why I go like, you know, I, I need to learn how to cook. Uh, but at that time, after school, at around 3.30, we would get back. It was a chain of cooking programs, like chain of cooking programs. I think it started off at 3.30 with uh, Ready Steady Cook. And then 4 o'clock, it was a Huey's Cooking Adventure. And then after that, it was uh, Simply Ming. And after Simply Ming, it was uh, Jamie Oliver's. So pretty much every day after school, I'd sit in front of the TV. I'd watch all these cooking programs to learn, 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 learn. And then uh, eventually on the weekend, that's where I play and I uh develop oh, I tried this different different recipes and I guess over time eventually the cooking got better and I guess by by the time I got into uni I was pretty confident with my cooking and that's where I could actually host parties for you know uni friends and stuff like that but uh, a lot of people go like oh your grandmother made you fall in love with cooking I said no my grandmother my ama made me fall in love with food being in Sydney alone to having to fend for myself the first two years and watching all these cooking programs and cooking for myself at home, that's what made me fall in love with cooking. Do you have a simple hack for cooking at home? Everyone listening and who loves cooking at home, my biggest hack is to do less. Less is more and keep it simple and rely on equipment. Always rely on equipment, spread it out. So I'll have my rice cooking in my rice cooker. I'll have a protein in my electric steamer. That's right, electric steamer. Like Again, <laughs> the rice cooker is electric because you press the one button, uh, you put the rice in, you put the water in, you press the one button, it's going to cook the rice perfectly. With an electric steamer, you can actually control the temperature. A lot of people think that, you know, if I steam it in a pot or a pan, uh, it's going to give me the results that, I've, that I see. Uh, but actually, it's not because with the stovetop, the, the temperature actually goes above 100 degrees. Whereas with my electric steamer, I guess same thing with, 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 with cooking in the oven, you can actually control the steam to come out at, you know, like the, the heat to be around 90 degrees. And that's actually what gives you the best outcome when you steam stuff. I'll have a pot of soup boiling on one stove. I'll have something braising in another pot and I'll finish off something in a wok. So your hack really for cooking at home is preparation is key. You need to have all of your ingredients cooking at the same time. And then to really rely on those kitchen appliances that you can get at almost any kitchen appliance store. You know, you don't have to have something that professional cooks would have to have an amazing meal within 30 minutes. Yes, and I can tell you that a lot of professional cooks don't have these equipment too. <laughs> so you can, you can get them. Before you opened Hojack, you had a whole cafe empire. Can you tell us about that? Oh, I wouldn't call it an empire. I just opened a cafe. So <laughs> what happened was I graduated with a double degree in, uh, from UTS, uh, a Bachelor of uh, Commerce and IT. So I came out, I worked for the big banks. I worked for Comsec. I worked for ING and stuff like that. So two years later, after working in the banks, I realized that my passion was actually in the food industry. So we're talking circa 2000. Six right now. And at that time in Sydney, the cafe industry was like, it was a boom. It was a boom. Like a lot of people were opening up different, different cafes at that time. And so I decided to just quit my job, walk down to the cafe uh, cafe down the street. And I just said, it was actually in Haymarket as well. It's longer there now. But I said, can you teach me how to make coffee? So I started making coffee. And then eventually I went back to Malaysia. I found a franchise. It's called Paparotti. It's this bun and coffee. And I brought it to Sydney and I opened the first one in Kogra. I went from one cafe in Paparotti and then I licensed the product uh, or the name. And within two years, I think we had about 18 to 20 uh, Australia-wide. And, you know, that was this my first step into the food industry. And, uh, you know, I guess 
realizing how tough it is, but again, at the same time, how much I actually love it. What do you think was the biggest lesson from owning that cafe and then wanting to leap from there to Hojack? The realization for me was at the same time, and this all ties back down to when I was here, when I was 16, uh, there was a Malaysian restaurant in Hurstville. And, you know, when you walked in there while you're homesick, they were actually serving Mongolian lamb. They were, set, they were serving fur and stuff like that. that. Then I realized that, you know, there's not much Malaysian food here in Sydney. Yeah, we have the Chinese, we have the Thai, we have the Vietnamese. But for Malaysian cuisine, it's not quite there yet. And at that time, we only had mamak. We had uh, Malay Chinese already. We had Malaya. We had Chinteria. And I thought a lot of times, even till today, you'll see uh, that the Malaysian cuisine that's being served here in Sydney, most of them are actually Malaysian Chinese. But a lot of people do not know that us Chinese in Malaysia were actually the, one of the smallest well, we're the smaller population we have. We're the second. We have uh, the Malays, we have the Chinese, and then we have the Indians. So we're actually a very multicultural country. And again, at the same time, Malaysia is a pretty big country. So our cooking or our dishes are actually very regional. So a laksa from the north in Penang, we call it the Karimi, and a laksa from Kuala Lumpur in the middle. The name might be the same, but the taste is actually completely different. So for me, that's when I realized that, oh, I actually wanted to showcase that. I actually wanted to do that. And so I actually went down to Melbourne and I bumped into this restaurant called Pataling Street. I went there, I tasted the food and it goes, oh, wow, this is fantastic. Like Melbourne's Malaysian food game is actually at a much higher level than Sydney at that moment. And I said, you know what? I need to bring this to, to Sydney. So I brought it to Sydney uh, with my business partner, William, and we opened the first one at Josh Street. I think within two years, we had four Pataling Streets uh, in the whole of Sydney already. It was, again, it was doing well. We were finally spreading the, the different kind of food that we wanted to. But at that point, I actually didn't have any control of the business. Uh, they were always reliant on a chef. So they would always hire the chefs and then they would be in charge. And I would actually go into the kitchen and I would actually say, you know what, guys? this dish is a little too salty or this dish is not spicy enough and all that kind of stuff. And, and I was a young guy at that time. So the chefs of the kitchen will always say, you know, bugger off, you you have no experience. You, you're just, you know, one of those guys, you know, who, who runs the numbers and stuff like that. You know nothing about this. You have no experience. And the worst part for that was actually the original business partners that I had from Pataling Street. So they were actually telling me to butt off as well. Don't, don't interfere. Don't interfere. Just run the business. I felt like I had no more room to grow and develop. And so after setting up for Pataling Street, I actually went to them and I said, guys, how about you buy me out? I've already set up the business for you. I've already set up four restaurants for you. How about you buy me out and let me um, start my own thing? So I got my buy-in money from Pataling Street. It was a, I took all of that and then we opened our first ever Hoja in Strathfield. It was a small 12-seater in a plaza. And... Then, yeah, that was almost 10 years ago now. When you launched Hojack at Strathfield, what were the initial struggles that you had at that time? Well, I think the struggle with any restaurant or any business was that you needed people to come. You needed people to come and try. I was this no one, nobody who just opened a 12-seater restaurant. And the struggle that I had was, you know, being busy. But again, like I said, I had the, it didn't get busy till about nine months. And then this article from Broadsheet came out. Uh, it was written by Nicholas Jordan. He was the first person to ever write about Hojia. And for me, what happened 
after the article came out, pretty much made whole just drive through what it is today. You've worked with Nick Jordan to help write your cookbook. So obviously you've developed a really good relationship since then as well. How did he help you tease out some of those stories? When I was approached to write the cookbook, I knew I couldn't write for, we can't say bad word, right? I knew I couldn't write for, uh, and I knew I needed to bring in a writer. And that's when I approached, you know, Nick Jordan and I said, you're the first person who wrote about Hojia. You know Hojia as, as well as I do. So how about we write this book together? And he was excited. And then pretty much it was just six weeks, seven weeks of me, pretty much what we're doing right now, me just telling my stories, him recording it. And then when he, when he went back, he put them all into words. Is there a dish on that menu that you're just really proud of for, for being experimental with flavor? Yep. So right now, or for the past few years, it, it was definitely the laksa bomb, right? Uh, we created the laksa bomb as an experiment. At that time, every Malaysian restaurant had to have laksa on the menu. <laughs> yes. It had to. And then I'm, I'm going, sure, I make a good laksa as well. But what I saw was every time someone ordered a bowl of laksa, then they would be full. And what I wanted to do at Tano was different. I wanted to create, I guess, main courses. And I wanted it to be more of like an Australian restaurant as well, where it wasn't just rice and noodles, rice and noodles. And so... You wanted to have the opportunity for diners to sit and have multiple courses or entrust in the chef to be taken on a journey. That's right. And also pair the food with wine and the ambience and, you know, enjoy the restaurant. So we wanted to take it to, you know, a notch higher and... um with the laksa bomb, the idea pretty much came from if we could actually make a bowl of laksa into one bite, how would that turn out, right? And so pretty much we decided on making a dumpling. We put the prawns, the chicken, the egg noodles, the vermicelli and everything into a dumpling so that you could enjoy it in one bite. So that was pretty much the idea of the laksa bomb where you have a bowl of laksa in one bite and you could still go on to enjoy other stuff on the menu. The Laxabom recipe is in your very first cookbook, which is available right now. And it has more than 100 dishes. And each one of those dishes is varying amounts of skills involved. Do you have any tips if people are making the Laxabombs at home? Yep. So I'll give the same tip to anyone making any sort of dumplings at home. Obviously, when you make the filling, you have to make it in a big batch. But before you start wrapping your dumplings, do wrap one first, cook it and taste it. And if you're happy with the flavor, then go on and wrap the rest. Because I find a lot of times where they've wrapped 100 and 200 dumplings and they don't need to realize, oh no, I forgot the salt in the filling. That would be my tip. We know that you work incredibly hard six days a week. You've told us you often just have the one day off. You like to spend it with your family. And you like to make sure that you're not spending all the time cooking for yourself. Do you ever go out for food in Sydney, and can you think of a meal you've had recently that's really memorable to you? Where were you and who was with you? Yeah, so I, to be honest, I actually do go out and eat quite a bit. Uh, with my family on Sundays, we'll have one out and one in. So we'll have one meal out, one meal in. To answer your question, one of the most memorable meals that I had last year was a restaurant called uh, New Pioneer Palace in Lakemba. So it's Chinese, it's an old school traditional Chinese restaurant in Lakemba. The dish that we had there was the red braised uh, abalone with sea cucumber and fish maw. 
I was actually with the boys. Uh, so Big Sam Young, Han Long from Ama and uh, David from Sun Ming. Uh, we all went there after service one night. And, you know, again, to to go in after service, we got we rocked out at the restaurant at like 11 p.m. And then to have that amazing dish put in front of us and they opened till like 5 in the morning and we were there till about 2 or 3 in the morning just slowly, slowly enjoying supper. I guess the word is supper because that's a big thing from where we come from, like our culture, having supper late night. So, you know, eating around at that time. And to be able to do that in... Sydney, Australia, I guess that's, you know, that's what made that meal so memorable as well, you know, with your friends and everything just hanging out. Are you a bit of a night owl? Uh, no, no, no. I'm a morning person. <laughs> I guess since, since, oh, well, obviously when I was 26, I started my first cafe. Being, you know, running a cafe, it means that you have to be up really, really early. And then two years later, I had my first kid. And then <laughs> two years later, I had another <laughs> kid, another kid. And you know how it is with kids. The moment you have kids, there's no chance for you to sleep in in the morning. So yes, I am not a night owl. I am actually a morning person. And these days I wake up, uh, I try to wake up at least an hour before my kids wake up so that I can just come down, uh, watch the news and prepare breakfast for them. Do they appreciate that they're being cooked for by one of Sydney's greatest chefs? I don't think they know that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how they'll take it when they're, when they're grown up. I think they just know that the food's delicious and, you know, that's about it. <laughs> we have a series at Broadsheet called I Can't Stop Thinking About. Often, for us, that's food-related. Is there anything that you're obsessing about or you can't stop thinking about at the moment? Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty dark one, to be honest. I mean, I guess... For the last three or four years, the only thing that I kept thinking about, or I, the the thing that I keep thinking about every day is, you know, when will we go back to normal? When will we go back to pre-pandemic? COVID hit hard, you know. And then what happened was every year it would be like, it's going to go away. It's going to go away. Another year, nope, another lockdown. It's going to go away. It's going to go away. And then finally after two years, <gasps> we're opening, we're opening. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be back to normal. And then, you know, boop, labor shortage. And then, oh, and then we finally found enough labor. And then, oh, how come the... The, the restaurants aren't the same or like Sydney isn't the same as before. Oh, because we don't have enough tourists. Tourism tourism isn't how it was before. It's going to take another four years before the tourists come back in full flow. And then, all right, all right, it's going to go. It's going to come back. It's going to come back. And then, boom, cost of living crisis. And then that's where we're at right now. We should talk about your new opening in Melbourne because that's very exciting. It's the first time you're opening a venue. And this time it's going to be three levels and three different dining experiences. Can you tell us what's involved? Yep. So first uh, restaurant in Melbourne and most likely my only one. That's why we decided for three stories. It was also my biggest one. Uh, what I intend to do was for the ground floor where it's connected to Royal Lane, it's going to be showcasing all of my, or it's going to be showcasing Malaysian street food. So pretty much the menu that I have from Hoja Ashrafu. So it's going to be your chicken rice, your laksa, your nasi lemak. And at the same time, I'm going to put in a new, uh, I guess, uh, feature of from Hoja it's called tap fun. It's economy rice. We, we have it in Malaysia where it's bain marie and that's like, you know, 20 or 30 dishes. And then you just, uh, I guess over here, what we do is like three, three choices for $10 with rice. And that's one of the things that I wanted to incorporate on the ground floor. Uh, on the first floor, that would be where we showcase the modern Malaysian side of things. So the laksa bombs or, you know, like our Caesar salad, stuff like that from Hojia Town Hall. And that would be the one where we have an extensive wine list. And yeah, second floor rooftop bar, it's where then I 
pay homage to my grandmother again. And that's where her food's going to be served. So it's going to be home cooking, home cooked style kind of food on the top floor where it's more, it's very friendly for families. And, you know, you, you go there to have a good time. And, and uh, yeah, it's just like Haymarket. What was your grandma's name? Ui Gyok Tuan. And what do you think she would make of where you are at with your career at the moment? She'd probably still just be sitting down there and smiling and like, you know, right before she passed away, I went back to Malaysia and I cooked for her in the kitchen. She was already wheelchair ridden and she couldn't, she had no energy, but what, what, what she did have energy was she was sitting on a wheelchair and she was still pointing at me and she was still telling me, you're doing this wrong. <laughs> You've put too much sugar on this dish. Like you should be doing it like this. You should be doing like that. And I know that she scolds me or she tells me off because she loves me. She's imparting really important knowledge. <laughs> and so I guess the person that I am is I want to do her proud. I want to do my parents proud. I want to do my wife proud. I want to do my kids proud. And, you know, are they proud of me? Yeah, I guess so. But for me inside, I, every day, that's what I wake up to. I just want to, you know, make people proud. I was going to ask what's the one thing you do every day that's important to you, which you've probably just answered. Yes, the I guess the most important thing, the important, the most important thing, things that I do these days, obviously to cook breakfast for them, watch them grow, and give my wife a kiss. I'd love to talk about what hojak means. It means delicious. Is that right? Yep. Why did you choose that to be the name of your restaurants? Because that was the most important thing to me when it came to I guess cooking or eating. Uh, in terms of food, uh, for me, when I cook, again, like I said, I, I, I'm not trying to be traditional. I'm not trying to be authentic. I just need it to be hojiak. I just need need to be delicious, and that's what I want to do. Because again, like I said, there's a lot of uh, other people who keeps coming to me and say, you know, it's not traditional. It's not authentic. It's not this. It's not that. Oh, the best one. It's not Malaysian. And I go, how do you classify a food? Malaysian or not, I, am I not Malaysian and did I not cook your food? So the food should be Malaysian. And, you know, there's a lot of all this other kind of stuff, but I always finish with the argument for to those who always say that to me. I always ask them, so was it hojiak or not? Was it delicious? And most of the time they'll be like, yep, it was delicious. So, so why does it have to be traditional or authentic? And every time I've eaten at hojiak, it's always been delicious. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. John Deku's cookbook, Hojak, A Taste of Malaysia, is published by Hardy Grant Books and it's available now. Also, Hojak is due to open on Burke Street in Melbourne in October 2024. So we look forward to hearing about that one again. That's all we have time for today, but we'll be back on Thursday with this week's news and recommendations. 